This is Tiger Hall. You'd have to be living under a rock to have avoided hearing the swirling concerns about how fast AI is developing and the ethics and safety of what's being built. This often coming from the very people who've dedicated their careers to building AI systems we have quickly adopted. From a corporate perspective, what do you need to know? If you're a senior leader and you have teams who are building new AI systems, what questions should you be asking? What should you be on top of? What is your role in the next generation of disruptive technology? We're speaking to Naveen Menon. Naveen is Vice President of Strategic Execution at Cisco. And until not long ago, he was president for Cisco in Southeast Asia. This is a huge topic, but Naveen has broken it down into three key areas you need to be aware of. Here he is. Naveen, there's a huge amount of debate in this topic, but as you say, not enough understanding of the dangers and the ethical considerations organizations should consider. What are the main things you think senior leaders should have top of mind at the moment with regard to this? Yeah, I mean, I think for senior leaders, it's important to realize that three things. One is there's disproportionate value accrual to certain companies and countries when developing AI systems. With AI systems, there's, for example, around 90% of all the patents, and in fact, VC funding included, actually comes out of two countries, out of the US and China. So there's a ton of value accrual that is being created and accrued to two large countries and the companies that operate within those countries. So that's one thing to realize, I think, for senior leaders. The second thing is AI systems are essentially still programmable and are essentially still teachable and are being taught by humans. Right. So I think there's a common mis- misconception, at least if you're living in a world that's outside of tech and you're just sort of evaluating, exploring like, you know, chat GPT and some of the basic functionalities of GPT, you might think it's all being pulled by algorithms and by machines. But actually what's happening is, is that it's being trained by humans. So there's systemic room for systemic bias. And then the third thing I think that senior leaders need to think about is that there's geopolitical turmoil due to the implementation of and success of AI systems deployment. So as we start to deploy systems around the world, it's going to create this kind of loss of jobs, redistribution of wealth, impact on economies. And this in turn will lead to geopolitical unrest. And that will actually be more significant than I think we're thinking about right now, because you're starting to see competition, but also collaboration, but mostly competition between countries on fighting for those intellectual property rights and protection of jobs. And, you know, there's policies that come in and try to protect certain jobs as well. So it's creating geopolitical kind of turmoil. So those are the three big things I think of and for senior leaders could think about. Okay, let's spend a bit of time diving into these three issues in a bit more depth. So we've got Concentration of power is our first issue, quality of data, and then the geopolitical issues that you just mentioned. So starting with concentration of power, tell us a bit more about this. Why is this so important for senior leaders to understand? Yeah, so I mean, look, if you're building AI systems, you need a strong engineering capability. And if your academic institutions are very much geared towards building that capability, then you can build an ecosystem around the academic institutions to actually hire engineers and deploy them, put them to work, and actually solve some of the big issues that need to be built around writing the next code or building the next hardware. For example, silicon is a big issue, right, in the future. The computing power that's needed and the investment in silicon is going to be a very important part of the success of AI systems. 
But, you know, where is silicon designed and made? I mean, it's made in a few countries. It's not made all around the world because the capability doesn't exist around the world. So it's the same thing with AI systems. Like, you know, if you've got an ecosystem around software development in North America, particularly in Silicon Valley, and you've got an ecosystem in China where you've got excellent developers, you're going to start to build software around those key locations. And then you'll find that engineers trained in, from India or from Europe will flock to those areas and will actually help build systems for companies that are built locally. So that's the challenge because eventually some of the best engineers, as you know, right now, a lot of engineering capacity is coming out of India, are still being developed for U.S. companies or Chinese companies. And similarly, a lot of the best Chinese engineers work in China, but also in the U.S. But are they working in other parts of the world, like in Europe or in North Africa or in Latin America? No, right? That's not where it's happening. So the quality of talent is very important for the creation of value. As a result, the value is being concentrated in two big areas, and that's where the patents are coming out and the innovation is being created. So if you're a senior leader sitting in London or Singapore working for perhaps not an MNC with links to the US or China, what should you be thinking about and doing? Reskilling. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Is that> a word? <laughs> no, honestly. I think I think you need to look critically at your job and decide if that job is going to be relevant in at least three years' time and not be afraid to take on something new. So to your question, if you're sitting in London with a certain job and, you know, this world is changing around you, what would you recommend to them to do? I would say definitely reskill. Mm-hmm. There's no harm in reskilling. I think you can only just build up new skills. You won't forget your old skills, but you'll build new skills. It's never too late to reskill. I'd hope that for myself, by the time I turn 70 or 80, I'm still reskilling and starting again and building something else. So I feel like reskilling has to be the way to go because if you don't reskill, then frankly, it sounds very cliche, but I think it's true now. You'll be largely irrelevant and machines will take over. All right, let's move on to issue number two, quality of data. What do people need to know about this? Well, I think people need to know, and there's some really great work coming out of MIT Media Labs in, in the US. There's someone that I follow quite closely. Her name is Joy Bolami, and she does some amazing work around systemic bias. She does a lot of work around skin color and how AI systems actually have trouble recognizing skin color. She published extensively in academic journals, and she used a lot of data around pixelation and color and everything, and looked at how whether a system was able to recognize, is it a man or a woman, right? You know, and then looking at color of the eyes and then linking that to sort of choices that the system makes in terms of attribution of the backend data, right? It's a really interesting report, but there's multiple research kind of articles that demonstrate that systems make incredible biased decisions. And that's because of the training that is given by the humans who are programming those systems. And linking back to the first point, if you are doing most of your development in the US or most of your development in China, you are going to be inherently biased in your data sources. And your data sources in the data lake itself is going to be a skewed sample set, a sub-sample set of the planet, which may not be representative of the planet. So if bias creeps into your data collection, and if humans are training machines based on biased data, and humans themselves have conscious and unconscious bias, then you'll create bias in AI systems. I mean, this is logical. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Hey, sorry to so rudely interrupt my own conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that this is a Tiger Hall podcast. 
Tiger Hall is the world's leading social learning platform, and we have hundreds of interviews just like this with amazing senior business leaders from around the world. These can all be accessed via the Tiger Hall app, which is free to download. You get free content every month and new stuff is uploaded every workday. I hope to see you there. There was that ChatGPT example. I'm not sure whether you saw this. It was doing the rounds on LinkedIn and ChatGPT assumed that a doctor was male right. and the nurse was female. Those are really prolific kind of examples because they're big and they're really easy to communicate. But I've got another one, which is a little bit more nuanced, which is really interesting. There's a student in the Netherlands who sued the university and the government actually supported this in this case. So this student sued the university because during COVID, the student, she was dark skinned. And so she had to do exams. And when they're doing exams, you have to actually have the camera on at all times so the camera can see your eyes. People do this like they have their cheat sheet on the screen and then they're like writing the answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So the camera has to look into your eyes and see if your eyes are shifting all the time or not in order to do the exam at home. And that was what had to happen during COVID times. So what she did is she turned the camera on, normal lighting conditions like anywhere else, and she started to do the exam. And then the camera kept saying, sorry, can't see your eyes, can't see your eyes, can't see you. And so she realized after a bit of trial and error, it was because there wasn't enough light in the room. And it was because of her skin color was darker than the average skin color that the system recognized and was unable to distinguish between the skin color of a white European versus, say, a colored European. And so what she had to do was she had to put this really blaring light behind her screen, like a spotlight, like a big, white, shining light. And it was shining in her eyes the whole time she was doing the exam. And she struggled to actually read the questions. So she was trying to answer questions while there was this huge light shining into her eyes that no other student had to deal with. And it was a timed exam. And she struggled to read the questions and type to make sure that her words were being put in properly. She struggled to type in the answer. And so there were spelling errors and all kinds of things that happened. And that led to a result which was unfortunately worse than some of the come of the class. And when she described this to the university, they took notice and they changed the software on the device because they realized it was simple shade. It's basically back to the research I was telling you earlier from MIT Media Labs. It's simple pixelation software changes that you can make to cameras to allow for multiple skin colors, right? So it's kind of nuanced, right? I mean, there's a lot of people out there that don't have good internet connections or don't have right light. I mean, come on, like we must be able to fix this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for quality of data, what's the action step you want senior leaders to take? Well, one is, I think, know about it, read about it, understand it. Second is, you know, try to ask yourself and your teams, what biases do we have, known and unknown biases? And actually start thinking about maybe bringing some external vendors in to come in and coach people on unconscious bias. There's many ways in which you can bring the conversation to your teams. In Cisco, we live our values according to what we call conscious culture. A conscious leadership, which means that every interaction, every conversation, every thought, and this is hard, right? It's hard to do, should be made from a place of deep consciousness. It's not particularly easy to implement, but this is a journey over many, many years to sort of have leaders conscious about the impact that they have on others. So I think bringing people into that conversation is very important if you're a senior leader. And I suppose also making sure that your teams, people who are building these products are sufficiently diverse and the people who are testing your products you know that issue with the the lady wouldn't have happened if if you have diverse teams yeah that's a great point so hiring diverse leaders bringing Mm. diversity into your teams but also into your hiring processes making sure that your interviewers are a diverse interview panel 
those are all very important factors to actually bring diversity into your decision making. Yeah. To make the technology work, we need diversity. Yes. yes. Okay. So the third issue, geopolitics. This is really interesting. Do you tell us a bit about this? Look, I mean, I think AI systems, obviously, machine learning early on and AI will actually obviously impact jobs. And in ASEAN and Cisco, we did some research with Oxford Economics. James Lambert, who is here in Singapore, was a partner of ours. And we did some really interesting work where we evaluated the ASEAN economy. You know, six countries. Actually, we didn't do all 10, we did six countries. And then we actually calculated the impact on jobs. And it was really significant. About close to 28 million jobs would be impacted and would be transition due to the implementation of AI systems. But as a percentage of the total workforce, we found the largest displacement would happen in Singapore, even though the population is the smallest, because the adoption of technology would be the fastest. But from a total number of people perspective, we found the biggest impact would be in Indonesia. You know, roughly, I think about 18 million jobs or 15 million jobs would have been impacted in Indonesia. Really significant impact. But the main takeaway from it was that 28 million jobs would be impacted by 2027. And of those 28 million jobs, most of those work would be recreated in new jobs, perhaps even more jobs, but at least those jobs would be replenished. But they would come up in different areas, and that would require a massive amount of reskilling. I'll give you a simple example. One of the biggest jobs that would be displaced is, for example, plant operators in manufacturing environments. Right now, you still have a lot of people looking at controls and making manual decisions. Those jobs will unfortunately go away in the future, because ASEAN is a manufacturing hub. It's a little bit like, you know, if you look back at a car in the 1950s, if you actually go back and sit in an old car, you'll see probably three things. You'll see a speedometer, you'll see a radio dial, maybe it had a radio, and you might see like, I don't know, like the hazard lights or whatever, right? The button of the hazard light, that's pretty much it. Maybe a gearbox, like you have to play, change the gear systems and everything, right? That's it. If you look at a car now, you see way more kind of systems and telemetry and everything built inside. That's the same thing that's happened with manufacturing. In the past, there was just literally simple mechanical changes that had to be made. Now humans are interfacing with machines a lot more on a day-to-day basis. Those machines show up in the concept of dashboards and dials. So the training that has to be made is, what do I do when I see this new data visualization? How do I deal with data? So we're going to be interacting a lot more with machines, so we need to actually train people to work with data. Frequently, many of the staff that are in manufacturing or in agriculture are not skilled with working with data. So we need to kind of invest in development of resources to help them build understanding of data and what data means, because there's lots of data interaction in the future. That's probably one of the biggest learnings I got from it. So on the geopolitical side and the major job shifts that we're going to see, what should senior leaders be bracing themselves for? What should they be getting prepared for? I think they should be prepared for constant restructuring. So every year, potentially, refocusing activities, changing their organization structure, literally letting go of good people, unfortunately, who are in a certain function that's no longer required, and transitioning those good people into other functions. And I think what happens nowadays is there's not enough restructuring goes on. Restructuring has become a bad word because it's it's synonymous with layoffs. But I don't think of it that way, actually. I think of it as refocusing your investments to things that you want to invest in in the future. And so there may be great people that are in functions that are just not needed anymore. Those people need to be reskilled. That's the investment the company has to make to reskill those employees and put them into jobs that are important for the future. And so 
Constant restructuring, I think, is what leaders should be looking at. They should also be looking at hiring, right? And hiring a different pool of people and raising the bar in terms of hiring. And finally, I think they should be looking at themselves and going, what changes am I making to my own awareness of the evolution of this field? Am I learning fast enough? Investing in your own personal and professional development is very important as a leader. Okay, Naveen, could you leave listeners with any final thoughts, reflection points for... We've got senior leaders listening to this, their role in the next generation of disruptive technology. Senior leaders have got a massive role to play. Reskilling themselves is a big topic. So being aware of what's going on, being aware of innovation capacity and capability across the world, being aware of systemic bias, being aware of the change in jobs and scope and the resulting geopolitical impact is important because as a senior leader, you need to know these things. Those are external issues that you need to be aware of. Second thing is, I think, challenge your own innovation, challenge your own speed of innovation and quality of innovation, because I feel that, you know, the speed and quality of innovation has reached like a different level now. If you're still making the same product and haven't made any changes to it in the last two or three years, then that's potentially an issue because you may need to think about how to consistently improve. And I'm not saying it's necessary to sell more and more and more. That's a very consumption-oriented economy. I think it's very important to improve products and services, you know, more innovative products and services. I think the last thing is it's important as a senior leader to set the right example and hire appropriately and create diverse teams, bring in different thoughts and points of view, and bring in external partners into your uh, innovation capability as well. All right, Naveen, this is all so interesting. Massive topic, as we said at the beginning, but really interesting. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Tiger Hall podcast. Quick favor. If you like this content, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a new upload from us. And of course, if you're hungry for more, and why wouldn't you be, don't forget to download the Tiger Hall app for hundreds more just like this.